and encourage your attention this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, as we continue on in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And today we are looking at the danger of stumbling. The danger of stumbling. Verse 41, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you who have by no means lose his reward, but... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Remember that Jesus is in his last few days of ministry, last few months of ministry, rather on earth. He's avoiding the crowds at this time. He's concentrating his attention on his disciples. He is teaching them, preparing them for the great work that was ahead of them. Their thinking was focused on Jesus as the Messiah, the Deliverer. And all the prophecies and promises that related to his work and what he was going to do. Uh, They, of course, wanted to know about their role in the coming kingdom. And it was in the midst of those kinds of discussions that the problem of pride appeared. We preached on that last week. I I got a lot of comments about it. A lot of people who expressed things, and, and I appreciate all that. I didn't respond to your encouragement by deciding to double dip and preach on it today again, but I'm going to preach on it today again, not because of anything except for the fact that Jesus isn't through with the subject. I put it up for you in just this way because last week we saw him talking about those three things that he brought to their attention, three things that counteracted uh, this pride that was in them as he talked about the cross and he talked about a little child and he talked about a cup of cold water and uh, what great passages those were. Then he goes right on from that and you see it in our text today as he creates a contrast between what he had said before about receiving little children and now he's going to talk to them about offending little children. As he is bringing all this to their attention then he is pointing their attention to something that's critical for all of us to remember. The Christian life is about others. It's about others. If we get to the point where the Christian life is about me, then we're really missing the point. To show you how critical this is, look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, and I I shared part of this passage with you last week, but I want to redirect your attention and thoughts to this again. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others. There's that word, others, better than themselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ Jesus is the one who set the example. He didn't look at his own things. He didn't make it all about himself. But instead he emptied himself, became obedient, took upon himself the form of a servant, and went all the way to die, even the death of the cross. Not for himself, but for you and me. And aren't you glad he did? 
He didn't just tell us, you see, to do this, to live our life with a focus on others, but he lived it himself. It is the very essence of who he was, of what he has done, the very heartbeat of the Christian faith and message. We hear a lot about a virus today. It's on a lot of our minds, and rightly so. Well, there's a spiritual virus. It's been working for a long time. It affects the hearts of people. It's contagious. It is highly infectious. Spiritual virus is nothing more than pride. One person can get it, it can affect a whole family. It can affect a whole household, a workplace. Yes, even a church. It spreads rapidly. You see, in the Christian life, we get it right when we humble ourselves and we serve one another. We mess it up, though, when we do the opposite. And then we start offending one another or causing others to stumble. Jesus, then, as he so often did, uses some of his very, very strong language in this passage to talk about how this behavior, this prideful behavior that leads to a selfish kind of indulgence and selfish ambition and self-preoccupation. He shows us then how it can cause others, believers to sin. Other people can pick it up and learn it. Contextually, that would, of course, refer to the problem of pride and how that they begin to think that being prideful as believers, haughty, is just normal. But we'll also see in our passage that this can actually cause people uh, not to believe in Christ at all. To be so repulsive, so offensive, that people won't be saved. When you consider what Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, it's not surprising that Jesus is going to speak as harshly as he does in this passage. These six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven, this is Proverbs 6, 16. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Six things that God hates. Seven are an abomination. What do you think is first on the list? Pride, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Now, this isn't a passage that I'm going to be preaching on today that is covered in a lot of Sunday morning messages. You might have lived your whole life and never heard a sermon preached on what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 9. The language is harsh. Absolutely. And I can tell you right up front, I'm not going to hard, uh, soft pedal what Jesus made so specifically. If Jesus spoke bluntly, then we need to... Take it bluntly. If, if Jesus spoke harshly, when, we need to do that. I don't need to soft pedal it and try to uh, make it more acceptable. It's, it's not that way. It's not that kind of message. This is, this is very, very strong language that Jesus uses in this text. And so we'll look then at the danger of offenses. 
It falls then into two basic categories, the, the cause of offensiveness and the cure for it. First, the cause. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Again, notice this contrast, what he had said earlier. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. The little children are the same. They are his little children. He's speaking of believers, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And how dangerous it is then to offend one another. That word means to cause to stumble. To offend one another so that other people then would be enticed to sin. We can receive people as Jesus received them or or we can offend them. There's really no way to get around this this morning, folks. Nothing is so detestable to new believers than seeing older believers operating out of selfish pride and ambition. It can turn them off to church altogether. Or it can draw them into the same kind of behavior. They've seen it modeled after all by other ones. I mean, here's a group of people, they're all making it about me and about what I want and what I like and what I think. Well, that's just the way it is then. Church is supposed to be about all of me, all about me. It was a dangerous moment for these apostles. Prideful apostles full of selfish ambition would produce prideful disciples full of selfish ambition. It would be catastrophic to the Christian faith and the truth of the gospel. And Jesus addresses it bluntly. It would be better for a millstone. Now these millstones in Bible times were about as tall as me. About six to eight feet, about two feet wide. They were pulled by oxen usually. And uh, so they're huge. Have a millstone then uh, tied around you and thrown into the sea. Now this is a powerful metaphorical statement. It's not just about dying, but dying badly. It would be better to die badly. With a millstone around your neck, drowned into the depths of the sea. Than to cause God's little children to either be turned away from church and God's service by watching prideful people carry on their business. Or seeing God's little children turned into prideful people themselves. Because they think it's okay. What do I need to say about that? Not much. (laughs) It says it all. Uh, It'd be better to be dead than to be teaching people, to be prideful people, to draw my little ones into sin. So here were the apostles. They were eat up with this problem. 
And Jesus knew if they didn't correct it, they were going to pass it on to generation after generation after generation after generation. Be very blunt. You'd be better off dead. Now, if we just stop there, that in and of itself would be an incredibly strong statement. Remember, I, I told you, a lot of you may have gone to church all your life and never heard a preacher preach about this on Sunday morning. You might have covered it in Sunday school class, but uh, it's not the kind of... You say, why are you preaching on it? Because I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark, number one, number two. I'm preaching on it because we all need it or Jesus wouldn't have written it down for us. And it goes on. It gets worse. Verse 43... While he's at it, <laughs> any of you ever say, hey, while you're up, well, let me tell you something. Jesus is up. He's going on this. So while he's going, he ramps it up a bit. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die. And the fire's not quenched. Now again, this is metaphorical language that Jesus used. It's given for the sake of emphasis. Something that Jesus did often over the course of His teaching. We know that because, listen, there is absolutely no evidence that a one-eyed man would sin any less than a two-eyed man would. No evidence that a one-handed man would sin less than a two-handed man would sin or, or that a, a, a one-footed man would sin more, less or more than... A, there's no evidence. And, and we know, in fact, that's not true because Jesus has already told us, listen, it's not what comes from without side. What, it's without a man that defiles a man. It's what comes on the inside because, you see, the problem that we fight with sin is all inside of us. You can gouge out both of your eyes and be completely blind, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be free from sin. There were people through the years that took this literally. They started a cult in the Middle Ages that... A, a cult of self-mutilation. Now, Jesus literally was saying, man, if my hand is causing me to sin, I just need to cut that thing off, and if I don't, I'm going to go to hell. Is that what Jesus said? Is that what He meant? Jesus then has taught us on the inside, but like the millstone cast into the sea, this makes a strong statement. Very strong about the kind of action we need to take about the cause of offenses. He mentions our hands and our feet and our eyes. This isn't difficult for us to get. It wasn't difficult for the disciples to get either. They didn't even ask him any questions. 
Our feet speak of where we go. Our hands talk about what we do. And our eyes, what we look at, what we see. We want to see the connection that is made. Our minds are just ready to make that jump. Already, we're just thinking about it. I hope you're thinking about it because I certainly did. We just make that jump very quickly. We go all the way back to the beginning of this, where the whole rotten mess of sin got started. When the devil was slithering around those little slimy tracks in the Garden of Eden, did God really say? And there was Eve. Where had her feet taken her? To the very tree that God told them not to eat of. Why was she there? Why was she there? What did her eyes do? She saw the fruit then, that it was good to eat and it was desired to make one wise. There's that pride part. And what the hands do? And then what did she do? She gave it to her husband. Remember how I told you that this problem is infectious. It spreads. It spreads. It always has. It always does. Jesus could look all the way back to the way this has played out from the very, very beginning. How many times had God seen this play out again and again and again and again with all of the consequences? To see everything that it has done to people. To see everything that it's done to to the creation. Yes, by the way, that was why Jesus was here on the earth. To die for his sins? No, for ours. For ours. This was the way things played out. He knew it. In their, in their pride, and it, it's just, pride is all in the midst of it. It's all there. Because pride led them away from the adherence to the Word of God. Their pride then had them going where they should never go. Doing what they should have never done. Seeing, watching what they should have never watched. You understand why Jesus was so stirred up about this. And why He called us then to treat it seriously. To understand how serious it is. Take it serious and, and take radical action. He'd already talked about offending someone, causing someone else to stumble so that they're either drawn into the sin to practice sin or, or maybe they're repulsed by it. They're pushed away from church altogether. And, and because of this, our pride then can, can spread to other people. That, that's so. But now he introduces another part. And that is the fires of eternal hell. If you look in your Bible, you'll see that that expression, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, is is almost always in italics. 
Sometimes it's also in quotation marks in most Bible versions, not all. The reason why it's in quotation marks is because there's a quotation from the Old Testament, the very last verse of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24 speaks of where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The word that Jesus uses in this passage is Gehenna, which in the New Testament always speaks of the place of eternal torment, the burning fires of hell. The command then to cut off or gouge out is simply describing the radical kind of behavior that needs to be taken in the face of an eternal threat, an eternal danger, hell fire. Now, remember that the the cause of these offenses is all about the problem of pride and, and selfish behavior. Certainly, this pride could spread to God's little children, cause them to embrace Pride is a lifestyle themselves, a kind of Christianized form of prideful behavior. But there's another side to this, and that side is the side where in pride people choose their sin over their Savior. And there are two possible applications of this. And again, I'm not going to dumb it down or make easy what Jesus made so strongly. First application must be made, and this is something we do in our interpretation of Scripture, and it's especially important that we do it uh, when we have a difficult passage like this one is. And that is, we, we need to talk about that audience. Who was Jesus talking to? And that's what we call the grammatical and historical context of a passage. What did he actually say? And what was the context in which it said? And Jesus is talking to his disciples. They've come aside privately. We know they're in a private house in the city of Capernaum. He's got 12 men in front of them. And one of them was lost and headed straight to hell. And that was Judas Iscariot. It was 12, and one of them was lost. That's uh, eight point something percent. I'll just round it off and say nearly 10% of that first crowd was lost. They were, he was a, a member of the church. He was associated with the apostles. He was an office holder. He was the church treasurer. Judas was eat up with pride. And though his feet were following Jesus, his heart was full of selfishness and his mind was all about what he could get. He had already seen the money and he had already taken it and stolen it. The other disciples didn't know, but he knew and Jesus knew. His feet were following along with Jesus, but his heart was all wrapped up in himself. What am I going to get out of this? His hands were grabbing it. His eyes were seeing it, looking for the opportunity. That was Judas. Where was it going to take him? 
It was going to take him to betraying Jesus Christ. It was going to take him to hanging himself, committing suicide, falling down in the field and bursting open. That's Judas. That wasn't even the worst part of it. Because though he died tragically, what came after was the eternal fires of hell. And Judas Iscariot is still burning in hell today. And will for all eternity. Why did Jesus then warn them about hell? Was he saying to them that you and I somehow, or that they somehow could sin and end up going to hell? I want you to get something clearly today. There is not a passage of Scripture in the Bible anywhere that would tell us that a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can somehow sin and lose his salvation and then die and go to hell. That is not taught in the Scripture. I don't have time to preach that sermon for you today. I've preached it many, many, many times. That wasn't what he was telling them. But there was one there in that audience that was in great danger of the fires of hell. And Jesus in this passage would no doubt be giving him a warning. I've preached in this church as I have many other churches throughout all these many years and I've seen a lot of people who were somewhat like Judas not all together they had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ they said they were saved they were baptized they were involved in church Maybe active, holding an office. They gave, they sang. I could point all around this church and I could point to men and women, teenagers, who at one time in your life, you thought you were saved, but you lived for maybe months and years as a lost church member. You were lost. When Jesus gave such a stinging message in this context to these disciples, what did Judas do? Nothing. How did it affect him? As far as we can tell, not at all. He might have even nodded his head and said, Amen. Yeah, give it to him, Jesus. Yeah, they need it. His heart was hardened. He had no response whatsoever. Yes, God had hardened his heart, but Judas Iscariot had hardened his own heart. And as always, the reason for that is pride. Maybe you're struggling today. Maybe some of you at home. And you know, you know, the Holy Spirit has convicted you again and again and again. You've sat through countless sermons where the Spirit of God was touching you and calling you, convicting you, you know. But over and over again, you think, well, what are, what are people going to say? What are people going to think? Oh, what are they, what, if they find out what a hypocrite I am. Oh, I can't stand it. What is that? Pride. Did Judas go to hell because he stole money? No. 
Did he go to hell because he lied about it? No. Did he go to hell because he betrayed Jesus? No. Judas went to hell for the same reason everybody else goes to hell, because he refused to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it so simply. He came unto his own, that his own received him not. But as many as received him, John says, to him gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. That's one application of the cause of the offenses. Because it doesn't matter in what church setting we are in. It doesn't matter how many hundreds, how many thousands of people that we preach to who have made professions of faith. Not all of those are valid. I'm not trying to scare you today. I'm just giving you the reality of things. If you're lost at home, you know it. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. If you're trying to convince yourself that you're saved, you've got a problem. Don't be like Judas. So there's a possibility that some would choose their pride, even in that audience, one out of 12, were going to choose their pride, where their feet, their hands, their eyes were taking them. They would not choose life. That's this passage. That's what Jesus said. Better to enter into life with one eye missing, than to hold on to your sin. That's what he's talking to him about. It's not these members. It's not an eyeball. It's not a hand. It's not fingers or toes. It's your sin. Are we going to hang on to our sin? Or are we going to turn from it to turn to Christ? This is a critical message in our culture today. Because the issue of whether a person has to repent of their sin in order to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ has been thrust into center stage today as if it's something that we've suddenly invented. Why were the Jews so unwilling as the most, for the most part to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior? Why would they ignore the signs? Why would they ignore the miracles? Why would they turn away from such incredible teaching? Why? Because to believe on Jesus was to admit that they were sinners. And they would not do it. They wouldn't do it. There it is again. (laughs) Pride. Pride. Yeah. You understand why Jesus is talking so harshly? There is, of course, another possibility. Another application in this passage. It's just as much of a reality because, you see, it's possible for us as believers to lead other people into sin. And it's also possible for us to be the cause for others to be offended and to reject the gospel message. not going to spend a lot of time here. You know, maybe we can buy the very best for our kids. I hope you can. You can bring them all to church in a fine new ride. I hope you can. But if we catch ourselves looking at that person who maybe doesn't have the best, and their kids are clean, but maybe their clothes aren't the best. We look at them folks that drive up on the parking lot in an old clunker. Maybe we'd never say it to them, but maybe we say it to our buddies. You know, they ought to be doing better. 
My mama used to tell me, son, it's written all over your face. I used to wonder how my mama knew. Did you ever want to go look in the mirror to see if you had lettering on your face? I had to grow up a little bit to understand what mom was telling me. A lot of times what we're thinking comes right out. It's written all over our face. Would we be so prideful? Would we allow ourselves to get to the point maybe where we're looking down at somebody because maybe the way they dress or we're letting our pride get out of the way. We may not say anything. We may say something to somebody else. We may not say anything to them. But they hear every word we don't say. Is it worth offending somebody? Turning them away? Turning them off for the gospel? You see, Jesus is all talking about receiving. Receiving. But He's warning about offending. And He reminds us that interwoven in this story, there are eternal consequences. Some people will choose their sin, hang on to it so much with pride that they'll go to hell over it. It's also possible then for us to maybe push somebody away. The cause. This thing is serious. We need to deal with it. There have been a lot of people who have been offended. Prideful people and prideful preachers. God help us. Jesus gave us some strong language. A millstone. And cut it off got to deal with this guys that's what he was telling that crowd and it's in this book because he's still telling us well, that's the cause now the cure I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it's just a couple of passages again something that might sound a little unusual to us but the disciples would have picked it up clearly and obviously did For everyone, he says, verse 49, will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Jesus then brings up the issue of sacrifice in this passage. Paul in Romans chapter 12 calls on us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. But Jesus is speaking of a very specific Old Testament sacrifice in this text. It was a sacrifice that was required that it always be mixed with salt and burned. That was the grain offering. Or the first fruits. It's detailed in Leviticus chapter 2. I'll just give you one passage, verse 13. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all of your offerings you shall offer salt. So the grain offering was mixed with salt and then burned. 
The salt represented, of course, uh, the work of God. God's everlasting covenant with His people. That's in the text. If you want to go there and read it in Leviticus chapter 2. Uh, the grain was their own works, what they had raised, what they had done, what they had produced. And they, they bring it to God then and they mix it with salt because that represents them uh, taking what they had done, joining it then with what God had done. And this was prescribed by Him to give Him glory so that they would understand that all of these blessings that they had came to them from God and now they're offering them back up to Him. But Jesus, in this passage, takes that Old Testament principle of the grain offering and He applies it to us. Every one of you. Just like Paul, I I beseech you that you present yourselves a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. You see, Paul didn't just dream that up. Jesus taught it right here. We're not going to be offering a grain offering. Of course, this had nothing to do with the atonement. Jesus Christ paid it all. Amen? Nothing to do with that. It wasn't anything. Jesus didn't bring that up. That grain offering, though, that was their work, their service, that they brought to God so it could be burned in and mixed in with that salt. That's where it was. cure for our prideful behavior and for all the things that are done from selfish ambition and pride, the cure for the behaviors that cause us to sin and then can cause others to sin, the cure for this is right here. You see, when we are saved, we identify with Jesus Christ through baptism. We join a church where we can serve Him and advance His kingdom. At that point, we are putting ourselves then on the altar of service and sacrifice. We are serving God. God then will work on us. That's all over the New Testament. The fire shall try every man's work. What's it going to do? It's going to burn up the chaff. That's what it's going to do. It's going to remove the dross. That's what it's going to do. And the salt, that's all over the New Testament as well. Jesus has spoken of this again and again. You're the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Now he says, have salt within yourselves. This will be something for everybody. Get on the altar. You know, grain, when it was thrown on the altar, it it couldn't get off. (laughs) But you and I can. And and we do. We do. You see, when when the fire comes on, uh, we find out real quick, hey, Jesus, that's hot. I don't know if you know this. It's hot. It's hot in here. Hot. It starts to burn something up. Hey, I like that, Jesus. That's that's mine. I like it. It Begins to rub salt in it. That hurts. Don't like that. The altar is not a real comfortable place for us. It's easy to jump off of it. But when we are on the altar to glorify God, Then Jesus says, you're going to experience my peace. And there it is. What will you be? 
you'll be at peace among yourselves. So he wraps this all together in a complicated kind of way to us, but one, no doubt, that made sense to the disciples, and I hope it makes a little bit more sense to us today. That Jesus is still going right at it, and in fact, he hasn't let up, he's intensified. He, he hit him good once, and then he turns around and hit him again. This is serious. There's eternal consequences. This is serious business. And the very fact that their disputes had come at this moment in time, oh, it was leading them down a very dangerous path. But he says, if you'll do this, just get on the altar. Then you'll be at peace. Peace of God. You'll have peace. And you'll be at peace among yourselves. Paul would many years later write to the church at Corinth about their divisions and factions and tell them, you know, these, these problems that you're having, when that has erupted, it's proof positive that y'all are in the flesh. That's what he said. You're carnal. And the flesh is rooted in pride, prideful behavior. But when we're on the altar, then we have peace and we can be at peace among ourselves. That old red book, Brother Bill, we used to sing out of and I was leading singing out of when I wasn't much taller than this pulpit right here. Had an old invitation Invitation hymn. We, we didn't sing those any other time. We just sung them at invitation time. And all, some of them were really direct. There, are, there's a great day coming. A great, there's a great, are you ready? Are you, boy, that was, that was direct. But this was one of them. You have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase. And have earnestly, fervently prayed. But you cannot have rest. Or be perfectly blessed. Until all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does a spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest when you're all on the altar is laid. Yeah. The cure is sacrifice. Not just something we bring, but ourselves. Are you on the altar today? The biggest question that I have to ask you today is, have you been saved? I'm not asking you today if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you today if you're a church member. I'm not asking you today how many places you've attended or how many places you've served. That's not what I'm asking you. 
I'm asking you, has there been a time in your life where you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, that's what Jesus preached, repentance toward God and faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. You acknowledged your sin and called upon Jesus to save you. Have you followed Him in baptism? Are you part of one of His churches where you're serving Him? Are you on the altar? I wish I could tell you that all of my all was on the altar. Some days it is. Some days it is. But I'll tell you, it's easy to get off. And when we do, we get in the flesh and get eat up with pride and hurry. Let's stand together, please.